Welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, a podcast to help you get an insider's view of the financial world and escape common investment traps. We look at the financial news of the day and help you make sense of it so you can relax about money. And here's your host, Paul Winkler. And welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, talking about the world of money and investing and educating along the way. Now, the, the education part, the coaching part, you know, sometimes people are, do I have to know this stuff? Yeah, you better, because if you don't know this stuff, you're investing your money with companies that you don't know what they know and they, what they don't know, and advisors, what they know and they, what they don't know. You know, the level to actually, or the level of education to actually call yourself a financial planner is abysmally low. I've talked about it. It's abysmally low. I think it needs to be much, much higher. Some countries it is around the world, but um, not necessarily. It's a lot of buyer beware in the United States, and that is why I do so much educating here. You know, and, and one of the things that happens is this. So often what, what we do is we go through kind of a psychological process what causes investors to get really bad returns and investment advisors to make bad mistakes, really the same stuff. Because people have these fears of the future and what's going to happen next, where are things going to go, and then trying to predict the future. And the investment industry uses their predictions, and they'll go on TV programs, they'll go in magazines, they'll get in interviews. And what they're hoping for is they may hit something right. And if they hit it right, then what they will do is they will go out there and trumpet how good their returns were, and the media will search them out. Whoever had good performance over the past year, past two years, or predicted the last big upturn in the market or big downturn in the market, let's go interview that person because we want to see what they think is going to happen next. If we can talk to them and say, hey, you know, you figured it out last time. Do you know what's going to happen this time? That'll attract viewership because everybody wants to know what the last winner has to say, right? Because what they do is they attribute, they attribute that luck to skill is really what's going on. And so often what I've got to do is help offset some of that because I want you to know, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? What, what expectations should I have? And, and you want to know costs and things like that. Costs are important and all of that. But, you know, what often sometimes the investment industry goes... That's all that matters. And, I, and I've done shows in the past where I show that's like really wrong uh, because there's more to the story when it really gets down to it. There's a lot of elements or a lot of ingredients in baking this cake of being a successful investor. So one of the things, I, it's almost like I can't believe I've got to talk about this, but I got to talk about this, okay? So... I, and, and let me just set this up and say one of the things that we have been talking about for the past month, month and a half, something like that, were the issues with the banking industry. You know, the issues with the banking industry have been they got these bonds that are the wrong duration. So what they do is they take investor money and they, you know, the investor makes a deposit at the bank. The bank takes that money and they reinvest it in something. And they were investing it in bonds that were too long in duration. So you'd have like a seven duration. If the interest rates go up 1%, those bonds go down 7%. Well, there's a problem 
because people come and say, hey, I want my money back. And they come in to get their money back and they go, oh, well, you know, your account's not really, uh, it was invested in these bonds and these bonds aren't worth as much as what you deposited and you got trouble. And that's where you had all kinds of, all kinds of issues where people are going, huh, you know, I don't know if I trust my bank. So we had a lot of conversations about FDIC limits and all of those types of things. And you would think that after coming out of that type of conversation, people would go, you know, maybe cash isn't quite as safe as I think it is or as I give it credit for. You know, maybe I rethink re not being diversified. And especially when you have talk about the dollar depreciating in value and other currencies around the world and those types of things, you know, if the dollar drops down in purchasing power worldwide, then what will happen is it'll take more dollars to buy things, which is hyper lots of inflation. And not saying that's going to happen, but I just that, that is what you hear a lot of talk about. So and never in a million years would I thought, oh, I better talk about this again. But I do, because if I'm hearing it out there, there are people thinking this everywhere. And that is the idea of going, hey, you know what? Uh, money markets accounts, uh, savings accounts, they're starting to pay a decent rate of interest right now. And maybe what I need to do is just go start you know, pulling money out of stocks and, and putting it into more money market accounts or something like that. Now, let me talk about this concept from a couple different angles. Number one, market timing by definition is any change in your portfolio based on a prediction or a forecast about the future. That is by definition what market timing is. You know, so when I go, I think, you know, maybe I'll pull money out of stocks and put a little bit more money in bonds. Uh, you know, I'm going to go and I'm just going to yank some money out of here and put it over here because now I've got a savings account that may pay four or five percent or whatever. And that's what I'm going to do. Well, that is market timing because I'm assuming that that five percent there is going to exceed the return of whatever I'm pulling the money out of. So that's the idea of market timing. Now, if you look at pension plans, I've talked about this before, but there's a Brinson Hood and Bebauer study. They did these academics did studies of pension plans, and they looked at almost a hundred pension plans. And what they were looking at is stock selection, how they chose stocks, when they moved money between different areas of the market called tactical asset allocation, which is a form of market timing. And they looked at asset allocation, they looked at other factors, expenses, and those types of things. And they found that the thing that drove the returns, what explained the returns, bar none, more than anything, was the allocation of assets between large companies, small companies, value companies, growth companies, international, U.S., fixed income investments, bonds, like the bonds, you know, like short-term money market type of instruments, those types of things. That's what was, isn't, that was what was important. So they say, wow, let's see, uh, how about stock picking and, and the market timing? How about that element? How did that affect things? It had a negative effect. In this one study, I remember the first one, it was like 1986, and they did in 1991, they did the study again. 100% of the pension plans hurt returns when they engaged in that. 100%. And you go, well, you know, maybe uh, if the pension plans can't do this, I just maybe I can't do it either. Or maybe my investment advisor can't do it. Because we're talking about the most sophisticated investors out there couldn't do it. What are the odds that you're going to do it? I mean, it's just the odds are abysmally bad. You know, so when somebody says, hey, you know, maybe I should, you know, let's just go and do this cash thing. Well, you think about this and go, well, what are your odds of being successful with this? 
going and moving. So what I did is I said to one of my guys in the office, up in our Goodlessville office, I said, uh, Brian, what I want you to do is I would like to look at, you know, let's look at all the rolling 10-year periods throughout history. So a rolling 10-year period would be like 1928 to 1937. That's 10 years. You know, 1928, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37. That's 10 years, okay? And I want to see what happened between those two dates. Then I want to look at 1929 through 1938, 1930 through 1939, and I want you to look at 1931 through 1940 and 32 through 41. Every 10-year period. And I said, let's divide the money up between the S&P 500, large U.S. stocks, uh, small companies as measured by the CRISP data, Center for Research and Securities Prices, the Fama French small value, Fama French large value, and just do, just do something simple. And we're not going to even make this academic. We're just going to divide evenly between all four asset classes, is what they're called. And then we're going to compare it against treasury bills. Now, treasury bills are when the government borrows money for a short period of time. So what, what we did is just use you know, th three-month treasury bills and just said, hey, what happened if I had put my money in those treasury bills, the short-term, you know, safe, no volatility as far as markets go. If interest rates are high, I get, you know, you look at the 1980s and the interest rates on those, because a lot of people have been comparing recently, with the 1980s, and you saw like, um, oh, good grief, it, it was like 9% returns, higher than now, significantly higher than now. So you can imagine the temptation now at like 5%, let's say, if you can pull that off. You, know, you can't find it many places, but there, there are some places, if you have enough money, that they'll, they may pay you 5% of your money. But you look at that and go, well, what, what if it's 9, 10%? That's a real temptation, right? So recognize that what's going on right now isn't something that's just brand new. It's never happened before, okay? Now, if we look at what happened in all these rolling 10-year periods, and you look at something called equity premium, as an academic would call it, they would say, what is the return above treasury bills during the 10-year period? And the first two periods that we use, and this is why Ibbotson went back to the 1920s when he did the data, and you know he and Rex Singfeld did the data on stock markets. On stock markets, is stocks, bonds, and bills was the name of their book. And what they did is they did they looked at data in the stock markets, the bond markets, and the treasury bill markets all the way back to that point in time. But they wanted to include some really hairy bad periods in history. So they looked at the Depression, they looked at World War II, they looked at the Korean War and, you know, Vietnam War and, you know, well, I guess you can include the Cuban Missile Crisis, that period of time, the oil crisis years. And of course, you, you're going to have more recent events like the banking crises and tech bubble and all of that stuff. Well, what they wanted to know is how stocks did versus different types of asset classes like bonds and different, you know, maturity bonds and, and different types of treasury bills. Well, the first two periods, of course, because this is at the very, very beginning of the Great Depression, the first two 10-year periods, the return of stocks was below treasury bills for the first two 10-year periods, 1928 to 1937, 29 to 38. You got to remember, we went straight into the Great Depression, but it wasn't, it was only 2%, just a little over 2% under. 
That was it. It wasn't a huge difference if you look at that period of time. And if you took the first period and went one more year out, 11 years, you actually got back to positive territory where the equity premium or stocks did better than bonds. So, you know, number one, you look at that and go, whoa, okay. Then you have to go all the way out to 1965. 1965 through 1974 to find another 10-year period and that was the period of time would have, which have, would have included some of those high interest rates, the Carter years, right? And you look at that and go, wow, okay. But again, it was only a little over 1% difference in returns. Not a big deal. You know, that, that fixed income outperformed equities over that period of time. And then you look at uh, 1969 to 1978. Again, got the Carter years in there, right? Because we had higher interest rates. But again, not much over. The stocks under, underperformed treasuries in that one 10-year period by 0.32%. And then, and then that's it. So, so the, basically, I have named for you all the periods in all the 10-year rolling periods. And you know, if you look at it and go, there are a lot of 10-year periods you know, from that period of time, 1920 to 37, 20, 29 to 38, and, you know, 43 to 52, and, and 48 to 57. And you look at that, and you, you don't have quite a 100 10-year periods, but it's almost. It is almost. So it's like 3%, well, now a little bit, a little bit over, well, about 4%, excuse me, it should be, because there were four of those years, right? Four of those 10-year periods. About 4% of the time, that's it. 96% of the time, to put it differently, the equities, actually, or the stocks, outperformed or had a premium over and above. Now, what were those premiums? How much higher were the returns? Well, you know, you had 4%, 10%, 11% from 1932 to 41, and then 14% was the premium, higher return of stocks versus that four-asset class portfolio. 14% per year. That's huge, huge. 11% per year was the next period, 1934 to 1943. 1935 to 1944, 14.43%. 1936 to 45, 14.52. And you got 8.74 and 15.78. That was 1938 to 1947. Uh, and you got, good grief, 1941 to 1950. It was a 20.21 per year. Now, remember, just to give you kind of, because sometimes these percentages don't mean anything to you, if you have a 2% outperformance over a 20-year period, you have approximately 40% more money. It's a big deal. It is a really, really big deal. And a lot of these things are, well, you heard, you know, 15, 20%, 11%, 10%. Uh, you know, the, the ones that are small, I mean, they're, they're ones that are smaller, 3.59 uh, there's one, 1968-77, which is close to the one where it underperformed. It was above by 1.36. But, you know, if you look at that last period of time, if you look at that last period of time, and if you looked at what small company stocks did during that period of time, you know, small international and large international companies, it wasn't even close you know, so if you were able to diversify more is, is the point I'm making, then, you know, that premium where stocks, where the premium wasn't there or the stocks didn't have a higher return than the treasury bills, well, 
you're back too because the decade of the 70s, international did so much better than U.S. You're back to in that particular case where adding stocks in there, you still outperformed treasuries or fixed income. But what, what's going on here? What's going on here is this panic that we go into as investors. It's a primal panic that we go into where we just see a bad year in the stock market. And then top on top of that, all this, anytime you have a bad year or anything goes wrong in the economy, out of the woodwork, the media is going to come and they're going to pile on you with the most negative, most scary predictions about what's going to happen in the future. And then all the voices of doom and gloom will come out and they will sound, you know, they, they will sound prescient. They, they will sound like they, wow, these people really got it going on. They sound like they're really no. And why is it that we think that they really have it going on? Because what they're saying coincides with what we've just seen in stock markets last year. You know, last year was a rough year. You had large U.S. stocks. Now, large U.S. stocks, which is what most American investors are overweighted in, like in indexing and those types of things even, overweight the larger companies, as I've talked about. So they got hit even harder last year than really if you were diversified, you should have been hit. You know, so there were some asset classes that were only down you know, a few percent last year. But here's the point. When somebody starts talking and it coincides with what you're seeing, all of a sudden, now they have credibility and you listen even closer. And, you know, especially when we're like driven to win, maybe we've been taught since we were kids to win, 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 win. And all of a sudden, you know, I have an investment portfolio that doesn't do as well as fixed income investments. Now, then, then I go, I've got to do something. You know, I can't just sit here. I got to do something. And we think that we're actually in control. Then we do something. And if you look back at, at some of the worst market downturns historically, you know, 73, 74, look at 2000 and, and um, oh, what, 2000 through 2002, for example. Uh, when you look at 1997, go back a little bit further. Uh, you look up at the 1930s. I mean, I'm jumping all over the place as far as dates. But if you look at like 2008, another example. When you look at these negative bad returns, well, we can look at 2020 with COVID. And you go, well, what happened right after that? Just when I would have been tempted to jump out and get out of the stock market and, and move off to the sidelines. Well, that's when you saw your really huge returns. You know, like if you look at, let's say, let's say that we take that one 1973-74 that I just said. And let's say that I invested, you know, it was 1975 to 1984. Well, that was after that downturn and your annual return above treasury bills, your premium again was 15.67 with those asset classes I was talking about, just, you know, divided between large, small, large value, small value, U.S. stocks. So you look at that and go, whoa, wait a minute. Well, what about the 2000 through 2002? Well, remember you had 2008, but you still, even with 2008, your premium from 2003 to 2012 was still 7.44% per year. And remember what I said 2% is. So it's, it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. So really watch it. It can be easy to be sucked in and scared 
to do the wrong thing. And Wall Street loves it because, you know, the more you do transactions, the more you buy and sell and you get out of this and get into that and do that, the more they make. But my job on this show is not to make you profitable for Wall Street. Hey, folks, I want to tell you something I'm really excited about. My new book, Confident Financial Planning, is finally out. It's in paperback, hardcover, Kindle version, and I actually have an audiobook version of it. Uh, it talks about building your financial castle. I use that throughout the book, talking about your investments, your financial plan is kind of like a castle. You have your savings and your emergency funds. I talk about that, debt, good debt, bad debt. I talk about special goal funds and how to set those things up and how to invest for those types of special things that you might want to do in the future. Types of retirement accounts, different types of taxation of investment accounts. Talk about real estate investing and pros and cons of that, how to project retirement assets, and your moat. You know, that's how you protect your castle. It's the risk management aspect of a financial plan. If you want to find out more about that, you go to paulwinkler.com forward slash book to get it. And I uh, hope you enjoy. You know, it's so interesting to me how investors make decisions. And I thought it was fascinating. One of, uh, one of the guys in my office up in Goodlessville, Michael, actually found an article from Chicago Booth. You know, so when you hear me talk about the CRISP databases, uh, Center for Research in Securities Prices, University of Chicago, that's what I'm talking about. That's where the data comes from. We have that data in our office, and that's I'm constantly going through it because I think it's fascinating looking at market history and, and how markets respond in, in different time periods, not to predict the market, because you can't do that, but to use it to help people not shoot themselves in the foot is really my goal. But uh, this was fascinating. They were looking at defined contribution savings plans. Now, it was, you know, back, oh man, you know, a couple generations ago, more than anything, that what people would do when they were dealing with their retirement is just stick their head in the sand because they could. Because <laughs> they worked for companies and those companies had pension plans and they didn't have to think about it a whole lot. All they had to do was just go to work and then they knew that when they retired after so many years, they would have a pension and that pension would pay them for the rest of their life. And hopefully they had a COLA on it, cost of living allowance on it so that they didn't have to think about that. Well, now we have defined contribution plans. Those are defined benefit plans is what a pension plan is called. Now we have defined contribution plans, which is you don't define what the benefit is going to be or how much income you're going to get later on in the future, but you define what your contribution is going to be. I'm going to put 4% of my pay away. I'm going to put 3% of my pay away. I'm going to put 5% of my pay away. Hey, you're coming to work for us. Say, hey, come on, we have a match on our 401k. 100% up to the first three and 50% of the next two is a common formula. Or 100% of the next, or the first four. And sometimes they're even more generous than that. Just depends on the plan. But um, what people do is they make a decision as to what to do with that. Well, what they did is they, they did a fascinating study. And they looked at the mix of fixed income bonds to stock funds in 401ks. And they wanted to figure out how people were choosing their investments. So what they did was they said, okay, so, you know, what is the asset mix of the typical investor? 
And what they found was fascinating. They said that the array of funds offered to planned participants can strongly influence asset allocations that they select. Well, wait a minute. What did I, you know, what did I always tell you is about the Brinson Hood and Bebauer study. And what they looked at is what drives investor returns is asset mix, asset allocation. They looked at pension plans and they found that asset mix is what is the most important thing, bar none, that you as an investor should be focused on. And so now they said that investors hold naive notions about diversification and pronounced lack of sophistication about portfolio asset selection. Shoot, <laughs> that was me when I was a financial advisor working for a big investment firm. I was pretty naive about it. Didn't think I was because I'd passed the test for Series 6 and Series 7, but didn't recognize there was a whole lot that they didn't teach us. But anyway, I digress. Uh, but, you know, so if you look at what's going on, you have lay people that know nothing about investing managing their own pension plans, if you think about it in a way because they're choosing their own investments. And they said in this study, it says, to a great extent, participants choose their asset allocations based on overall makeup of the funds in the plan. It's particularly common in the proportion of assets invested in stocks depend on the proportion of stock funds the plan offers, which is hilarious. In English, what they're saying, and this is kind of, you know, when Michael was telling me about it, he said, in the example he used, I'll just use his example. He said, so if you got three stock funds in your 401k plan and one bond fund, for example, you know, three quarters of the fund choices are stocks and one quarter are bonds. So what they have is three quarters of the portfolio on average with investors is stock to 25% in bonds. You know, so 75% stocks, 25% bonds. And you go, well, wait a minute. Is that the right asset mix for you? <laughs> well, you know, for some people it might be. But the reality of it is your asset mix that makes the most sense really strongly depends on your time horizon. Not on the mix of stocks and bonds that your 401k happens to have. You know, so if you look at a younger investor, it's in their 20s maybe, early 30s, you might be 95% stocks. You know, sometimes it's even, even older, you might be that much in stocks. It just depends on your personal situation, how much you're contributing, what your account balances are, and all of that stuff. But if you've got this type of an asset mix, it's just, you know, really more conservative than you want to be, and you're taking more inflation risk than you might want to be taking. Because if you have too little in stocks, you end up, you look at inflation, and that is what fixed income bonds, historically, that is what it gets absolutely decimated with inflation. You know, your bonds. Well, if you're an older investor, you might not want to have 75% in stocks. It might not be the right asset mix. It may be more 50% or 60% or something like that. You know, it's, it's not unusual to see those percentages. But people are basically, what they're doing is they are investing based on the choices in the 401k plan. Which shows you what they're probably doing is they're going through and going, ooh, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, I'll put a little in this fund, a little bit in this fund, a little bit in this fund, a little bit in this fund. I see, I see people use target date funds that way. 
they got a little in the Target Day 2020 fund. They got a little bit in the Target Day 2030 fund. They got a little bit in the Target Day 2050 fund or whatever. And they don't recognize that they're owning the same exact stocks over and over. Even the, even the doggone Target Day funds do that. They Inside the Target Day fund, they own the same stocks between the mutual funds. But that's another story. That's it's another silliness that I see all the time. But, you know, what, what happens, they just spread it out and they think they're diversifying. Well, they are, but not in a way that's really conducive to getting a good retirement <laughs> result, likely. You know, so that's the problem, you know, when people just, they don't really know what they're looking at and they just do something and they think, well, you know, I'll just, you know, just spread it out. Oh, my, my employer must have chosen these funds for a reason. And I heard you ought to diversify and they have no clue what they're doing. And then they get down the road and they go, well, you know, I, I have way less money than I should have had. And you can't do anything about it because the employers, what they do in their 401ks, they typically will plead 404c, which is we gave you lots of choices and you had all the choices and you could have gone and hired, you know, somebody to help you understand what the choices were, but we gave you lots of choices. That's this where our job ends. And then the investor ends up going, well, is it rice and beans today? Uh, <laughs> where are we going to move to? We can't afford our house anymore. You know, I, I don't know. It, it's just unfortunate that so often investors, they don't really understand what they have in a 401k. And some people have used that to say, well, that's why we ought to do away with a 401k. People don't know what they're doing. We ought to do away with them altogether and throw the baby out with the bathwater. No, it's just make sure you get some help on this. Now, unfortunately, I've seen too many firms, big firms, that go, hey, we'll charge you a management fee on your 401k plan. And then I look at what they're doing and I'm going, they didn't know any more than the investor knew. When I look at the allocations that they come up with, you know, so often you're wasting your money on that and you think, well, they know better because they, they're charging me a fee that they must be smarter. Don't bet on it. <laughs> I mean, I, I often, I often talk about those studies about investment advisors screwing up their own portfolios. And, and you know, this is why, I, you know, for, from my standpoint, I always demand a much, much higher level of education than the industry demands by far for any of the people that work in our offices. So uh, anyway, Paul Winkler, you are. And that's why, you know, if you want to find out more about that, by the way, shameless plug. Just go to our website, paulwinkler.com, set up a free 15-minute phone call, and I think you're going to find that, yeah, they do. They do know a whole lot more. And they'll point out things going on in your portfolio that you'll sit there and go, whoa. That's, that's usually what happens. You come in and you go, hey, here's what I've got going on. And usually it's a level of shock when you find out what has been missed and what's really going on underneath the hood. I think it's really important to go through that process. Because you do not want to blindly trust the investing industry. You don't. I, I, I was in it for too long, been doing it for well over 30 years. And I see people that, you know, that heard one guy saying, oh, I've been doing this for 35 years. And I'm like, yeah, you got 35 years experience, you know, one year experience 35 times. Because, <laughs> you know, but it's really when it gets down to it, you want to under, you want to be a partner in the process. If you know what's going on, what am I doing? What's going on? How does this line, line up with academic research? Your level of confidence, I find, goes way up. Hey, this is Paul Winkler. Hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Investor Coaching Show. If you want to learn more about what we do, go to our website, paulwinkler.com. 
You can watch some of the videos there, and if you're not already a client, you can set up a free initial consultation. Until next time, I'm Paul Winkler, reminding you that I believe that more educated investors are more competent investors, and confident investors are more successful investors. Have a great one. Advisory services offered through Paul Winkler, Inc., an SEC-registered investment advisor. The opinions voiced and information provided in this material are for general informational purposes only and not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what investments are appropriate for you, please consult with a financial advisor. Paul Winkler, Inc. does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your particular situation.